0: Welcome to The Real Photo Show. This is part two of two of my conversations with presenters at the Catchlight Visual Storytelling Summit, which occurred on April 19th and 20th at the Institute of Contemporary Art in San Francisco. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Tara Pixley. Tara and I talk about her presentation with Daniela Zalkman on the state of photography in 2022. We discuss the report, its findings, including the underrepresentation of historically marginalized communities. We also talk about what is changing and what may come next uh, in order to address the findings in the report. And lastly, because you know I am always interested in those who teach in this industry, uh, Tara speaks about what it's like to be both an active professional and an educator in visual journalism. So the full report and the panel presentation are linked in the episode notes. The panel was called State of Photography Behind the Numbers, Survival in a Shifting Industry. Let me read a little bit of the description. As visuals become an increasingly important part of the global media diet, Economic precarity has become commonplace for many photographers in the digital age, a key finding of both the State of Photo 2022 report and the Visual Storyteller Field Survey, which led to the creation of the Photo Bill of Rights. What is behind this disparity and how will image makers, including those in underrepresented groups, survive? Tara Pixley, an award-winning visual journalist, professor and co-founder of Authority Collective, an organization resourcing and amplifying women, non-binary photographers of color, discusses these issues with Catchlight Global fellow Daniela Zalkman and multiple grantee, documentary photographer and founder of Women Photograph, an organization which confronts the gender imbalance and inequities rampant in the photo industry. So the report itself was put together by Tara Pixley, Martin Smith-Rodden, David Campbell, and Adrian Hadland. And it was made possible by funding from Catchlight and the Knight Foundation. And this episode was made possible in part by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Check them out at charcoalbookclub.com where you can also just purchase their books uh, at their shop. Uh, So Tara Pixley is a visual journalist, strategic storytelling consultant, and a professor based in Los Angeles with an MFA in photography and a PhD in communication and two decades of experience as a media producer and editor for editorial, nonprofit, and commercial organizations. Uh, Also, one last note before we get started. The JKC Gallery's Third Thursdays will have its final Third Thursdays for the semester or season depending on <laughs> whether or not you're in education or you just go by seasons uh, and that will be on may 19th at 6 30 and we will have the fantastic wendell white and aaron turner both former guests on the show and also both artists who showed their work at the gallery uh, so check that out at jkcgallery.online all right everyone thank you for listening enjoy the show and we will talk soon Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk to you today.
0: Oh yeah, the the, the Catchlight Visual Storytelling Summit just ended. Really, right? Yes. Uh, today's Monday, so it,
1: it was last Monday, right. Tuesday, and Wednesday. <laughs> I have to keep <laughs> finding myself in in space and time.
0: <laughs> right. Right. I mean, so kind of in general, how was it? How was the experience?
1: Oh, it was incredible. I. I have not uh, had the privilege previously of attending a Catchlight event, but I can say with confidence that they know how to throw a good, uh, a mm. good party, <laughs> a good, uh, nice. <laughs> enjoyable, you know, converging of photographers and photo-minded individuals. And it really felt, I, I mentioned this to Elodie, the director of Catchlight, that it really felt like such a focus on what's next. What do we do now? you know, I've been to so many different photo meetings and meetups and festivals and things, and they've all been wonderful in their own way, but this just felt like we were all kind of thinking collaboratively and collectively toward how do we address the things that we are seeing our issues. And then also kind of, showing the ways in which people are already doing that with their work. You know, a lot of times we get very stuck on, okay, we need to diversify photography. And then also, how do we diversify photography? <laughs> and I feel like this this summit had really kind of passed that stage. And we were having a really robust, lovely conversation about what these kinds of like decolonial and very inclusive and really critical engagements with visual practice and work looks like and that's what I saw you know really coming out across the photographers who were speaking the way that the panels were arranged the topics that were covered it was it was truly wonderful and such a nice thing to come experience oh, that's great. out of out of COVID for sure
0: yes right so you you presented what was called a state of photography behind the numbers survival in a shifting industry along with Daniela Zalkman
1: Yes, we did. We were yeah. the first to speak, so it was a little uh, oh, nerve-wracking, <laughs> but <laughs> a wonderful experience.
0: <laughs> you set the bar.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I hope we set it well. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> and it's a long study. It's a over 1,300 participants, 87 countries. And what I found really interesting, it, uh, it wasn't just people in the documentary photojournalism world. It was open to all kinds of photography, all kinds of artists, all kinds of participants. Yes,
1: absolutely. And I, I will say, you know, the caveat to that is that we did primarily get, we did have many photographers who work primarily in reportage and photojournalism. But it was important to us that we didn't kind of pigeonhole who could participate. We wanted to be as expansive as possible. And that, I think, really allowed us to also acknowledge and recognize an important a key finding of the report is that photographers are working across a lot of different genres and types of photography work in order to make a living. So, you know, kind of opening up the, the survey to as many different photographers as possible was a part of the goal. I would say we, we had 1,325 respondents in the end, and I would love to see... Much more than that, you know. Like, I know that there are many, many, the photog- working photographers around the world who we didn't reach, and every survey is—it's a reflection of who takes it,
0: you know. So, am I mistaken? Isn't like, 30, let's say, thirty percent response rate considered like a wild success in a yes. survey?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which I was so sad to learn because I'm one of those weird people who just takes every survey and someone offers me a survey. I'm like, of course, I'll take it, you know, <laughs> just, right. especially if it's anything about like my industry or an institution I work with. I'm just constantly taking surveys. I guess I have a lot of opinions and I want them to be known. What can I say? <laughs> so I, I was surprised to find that people are not as into taking surveys. Um, you know, I, I want to tell them, you know, your a survey is so much more powerful than your Yelp review. And <laughs> people exactly. are Really into exactly. that, <laughs> but right, you, know, you, right. you really There's can't some collate data from a
0: Yelp review. But you know. yes, <laughs> <laughs> and and actually, I, you know, it does make sense that you wanted to be expansive because part of Catchlight's mission is this idea of what is documentary work, right? What is visual storytelling, and to be expansive in that definition. But also, you and Daniela share a concern for representation in photography, and so. You know, sort of keeping track of this kind of data and seeing the state of photography and, and really the the state of participation and uh, remuneration and uh, being treated fairly and being treated, you know, decently. Right. I mean, that's that's already that was already in your wheel, wheelhouse, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to speak for Daniela, but we've been working together and known each other for the last five years. And really collectively working or, you know, I would say that like individually in our organizations, but also often collaborating on as many interventions and different projects to to diversify the photo industry. And I, I really actually hate talking about diversity because it's such a kind of like... It's not a super useful way to think about it. Diversity Mm. exists, right? And it's not that there isn't diversity. It's that the industries we work in have been so exclusionary and lacked equitable practices that all of the diverse people doing this work in the world have not been able to get ahead. So... You know, to focus on diversifying something is to really ignore the key issues, which is being inclusive and making a space that is accessible to everyone who who can do this work. And yes, so to your point, Danielle and I have been working for a long time, and my organization, Authority Collective, working with Women Photograph, and also our other collaborators, Diversify Photo, Black Women Photographers, uh, Everyday Projects, and several others around the world, really trying to put resources and energy towards thinking about you know, what does an equitable industry look like? What does equity and practice and accessibility and practice look like? Like, what are the barriers to entry and how do we remove them? So that everyone who, you know, wants to be a photographer has at least the opportunity to try. You know, it's a hard job and not everyone has the like skills and talents, whatever to do it, but everyone regardless of identity should have the ability to again, try to make it in this field. <laughs> Remind me of the question. (laughs) No, no, that was it. That that was it. It
0: I I was just really just commenting on on how this was already something you were looking into, right? Yes, you weren't picked out of nowhere to do this white paper.
1: (laughs) No, and actually, let me uh, give a little bit of background on that. So, I was really impacted, like many folks, by the statistics that came out of the 2015 State of News Photography Report done by World Press Photo, and. You know, when we saw that number, that 15% of the photographers who responded were women, that really impacted the photo industry. I think people really didn't believe or recognize (laughs) how bad, you know, how bad things were. And I I had my PhD in communication. I went and got a, a PhD partially to teach, but also to try and learn how to do this kind of work to be a quantitative and qualitative scholar so that I could look at this industry that I love and really understand what is happening. So I could bring kind of like a critical analytic lens to the work that I'd been doing for years as a professional full-time photojournalist. And so now I kind of split my time being a freelance photographer and being a scholar and educator so that I can continue to, you know, kind of (laughs) work in the field while also impacting, you know, hopefully affecting change and impacting the space. And so I had really been, every time I saw a new state of news photography report come out, I had more questions. What about people with disabilities? What about black photographers? What about, you know, what is the relationship between those who are entering the World Press Photo Award as photojournalists and, you know, who's winning these awards and what, what countries are they coming from? What are they photographing? And that was the other thing is that the world press photo reports were wonderful and very informative, but they were only representative of photographers who entered that contest. And I really wanted to see a survey that looked, that was available to everyone that was asking questions about all the photographers. And, you know, when we opened it up beyond respondents, just to those who were uh, submitting to the award, we had a big shift in the gender representation. We had a big shift in a lot of different things. And it allowed us to understand, I think, so many important things that we need to know in order to really dig into the equity work and making photography more equitable.
0: That 15% response and reading... Daniela's posts on Twitter on how many women are represented, you know, in these new that got published this week or this month or mm-hmm. it was a huge surprise to me as well, because I don't you, you teach and I and I teach and I don't know if this is the same for you. But I know for me and a lot of my colleagues, 60 to 80 percent of our photography classes for the past five to 10 years have been women Absolutely. for the most part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so it, it was not reflective of what we were seeing in our classrooms. Yeah, the
1: global statistic on women in photography—it's like I think seventy-two or something. It, it's an, in mm. the seventies range, and so yeah, that's been my experience. That's the experience of many people. So what that tells us is that there's a huge drop off. That there are barriers to entry. That there are um, that we have really bad retention rates. So it's not that there aren't a ton of women who are interested in making it in the industry. It's that we are not uh, supporting the work of women, that we're not recognizing the particular limitations that they're experiencing. And how do we figure that out? You know, like I, I think something that happens that I see happening a lot is that people think, oh, I can't make it because I'm not good enough or, you know, all these different things. We feel like this is an individual issue. I used to feel like that as well. When I was a young photojournalist, I was also a young mother, so I was a woman, black, <laughs> a young mother <laughs> trying to make it in photojournalism and I was met with so much derision and I really struggled financially. My family is not wealthy. I come from a, a working class immigrant background. So I was experiencing all of these barriers to entering the field and things that were pushing me out. But I wasn't recognizing that it had a lot to do with the way that people were treating me or the lack of respect. I thought, you know, oh, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not good enough. And then when I changed my environment, my photography was the same, but I changed my environment, got people who were actually willing to mentor me and was on the front page of the New York Times within a few months, you know,
0: so it's kind Mm. of like, wow, yeah, that
1: experience helped me realize, you know, everyone has room for growth. Like I'm not saying I was some kind of phenom or anything like that, by (laughs) no means. But, you know, certainly I had a lot to learn. But I wasn't being mentored or you know, given the opportunities that I needed in order to succeed. And when I received those, I did, right? Mm. So, so for me, looking at these numbers, I know that those numbers mean that there are all of these individual women, women of color, non-binary folks, people with a disability, people who are coming from lower socioeconomic resources and backgrounds. And they are feeling like, oh, this is – I can't make it because I'm just – it's me, you know? And, I, and that isn't true. It's the industry. And so we really need to make this a place where excellence rises to the top, where hard workers rise to the top, and you don't get ahead just because your parents were wealthy and so you had all the best equipment and you're white and a man. And so people take care of you and recommend you and give you jobs. You know, we want it to be that everyone who is good gets work.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's in looking at the survey, and I do want to talk somewhat about the the, the paper, the top ranking was in the questions you asked, was be accurate and truthful in visual storytelling. Everybody wants the same thing, right? Everybody mm-hmm. everybody wants to just, they want to do a good job. They want to represent people well when they that they're photographing. They want to be truthful. They want to be accurate. And, I, you know, nobody gets into it thinking, I'm going to have to advocate for, you know, one group or another group. Everybody just wants to, you know, do well and, and be accepted for the work that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then like your experience, you realize you've got to figure out these other sort of avenues and other ways to, to be in an environment where you are recognized for the work you're doing. It's, you know, it's, it's not just, Hey, I'm here and I'm good.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you had this great point, Michael, about um, how our classrooms are full of, you know, are, are diverse, I think in different ways, but then the The newsrooms, the, you know, the bylines of magazines and newspapers and the people working across the world in photography are not diverse. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing with this survey and the opportunity that we had here with the survey is to try and understand what's making people leave. And that's something that, you know, you also saw as we had a a space for push factors. And we're we're asking folks, like, are you thinking about leaving? And women Mm. were at a much larger rate than male photographers, the female photographers said that they thought that they might have to leave the industry because they weren't making enough money and all of these other experiences. There's a lot of, you know, gender discrimination and sexual harassment and things like that. So we can see now that, you know, rather from these kind of like just individual anecdotes, which are really important, but now we can actually pair that with this data that says, Hey, look, a lot of people are having this experience.
0: Yeah. And and you can't just say uh, I can't find uh, people who are talented enough uh, applying for work, right? There's all these factors that are coming out now. And you know, getting getting to the the results a little bit. And again, we don't want to we don't have to go page by page and get into the weeds. But overall, what was not just you know um, the findings, but the sort of the reaction to the findings.
1: Well, you know, I think we'll we'll find hopefully I'll hear more about reactions to the findings over the coming. <laughs> oh, that's weeks right. Because it just we, happened. Like, yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will say that at the summit itself people were seemed really um, responsive and excited about the work that we all did, my team, and I'd like to actually just shout them out really quickly before Please I forget. Please yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. I was working with Martin Smith-Rodden, who's a professor of visual journalism at Ball State University, and David Campbell, formerly of World Press Photo, Adrian Hadlin, um, who works at University of Sterling, and those two had actually worked on previous reports. And also Paul Lambert, uh, he helped create the survey, but didn't end up uh, writing the report itself. So we have been working collaboratively for the last like more than a year and a half. And which was tough, as you can imagine, working across the UK and oh, yeah. <laughs> like East yeah. Coast time zone and, <laughs> and I'm in L.A. But so back to your your specific question. So we were getting, you know, I think that the throughout this process, we've been hearing a lot of positive feedback of people saying, I can't wait to see what comes of this. And we had several reviewers who looked over the report and gave their feedback and thoughts. Daniela was one of those reviewers was really giving of their time to to look at look it over and give us preliminary feedback. And the overwhelming response that we got from people is wow, this is, you know, this is really important. This is really great to see. I've been getting messages from people on social media saying, thank you for this. <laughs> like this is oh, wow. you know, this is actually showing some answering some of the questions that they have had about the experiences of photographers of color of people coming from different backgrounds and you know i th- i think that we were able to speak to a lot of things that we were missing from previous surveys. Mm. Which is not to say it was totally comprehensive. There's so many things I wish that we could have asked. We had a really, it was a very long survey. We'd originally said we would cap it at 50 questions. And I think we ended up at 57. Wow. So hey, that was, makes that
0: number of respondents even more impressive. <laughs> yeah.
1: and I mean, we had way more people than that click on the survey, but we only counted the people who spent a certain amount of time who, who gave right. enough information that we could like, you know, discern something from it. And so, yeah, and some questions have a lot more respondents than others. So, um, it was. <laughs> I would love to have a somehow have a survey where everyone has to answer every question, and we get at least <laughs> two thousand people to answer it around the world. That's, that would be amazing. I don't know that's if that's right. ever going to happen. <laughs> um, you know.
0: Yeah, and, and and even with the numbers you have, it's it's a lot of data to go through and connect and make sense of as well? Because, I, you know, looking at just some of the, the findings that I'm bouncing around, you know, there's financial insecurity, there's a report of significant loss of income, a third of female respondents said, uh, there was access to healthcare, there was uh, the pandemic as a layer on top of all those other things, right? It's mm-hmm. a kind of a distortion of all those other things and how it affected more underrepresented groups.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, part of why we had so many questions is that we were hoping to Um, get enough kind of preliminary. Like we wanted to find out who is taking this survey. Like, who are you in the field? But we also wanted to hear people's experiences specific to many different things. Do you apply for awards and grants? You know, one of the reasons we ask those questions is, to try to understand how people find success in in the industry. And you know, with any, with any uh, study like this, you're operating from a few hypotheses. You have your research questions. And one of the questions for me has been, how much does your socioeconomic background impact your career across the life of your career? And I think we know that getting into photography is expensive. Cameras cost a lot of money. Uh, a lot of times you have, you're expected to travel and to kind of photograph well beyond your own community and neighborhood to get a portfolio that is respected and validated and often award winning. And when you win awards, you win commissions, you know, you win more attention, you win more access to the networks that you need to get more commissions and assignments. And so it, it's cyclical. It builds on itself. Exactly. Yes. Right. And, yeah. But all of that starts with the camera, which is itself a very expensive piece of equipment. So, you know, there's all these different levels of financial expectations and requirements to become successful. And then you're, if you're trying to be recognized and have longevity in the field, then having those awards and grants is really important, but those awards and grants often charge submission fees and, you know, $50 for a mid-career photographer in the U S is perhaps doesn't seem like a lot. 50 to USD to someone yeah. in
0: converted to yes. to
1: different countries that can <laughs> yes, be yes. a lot of money. So, you know, we're yeah. automatically creating these layers of inaccessibility and, and locking people out without really thinking about it because we're coming from such a, um, Westernized person, you know, centered perspective.
0: On, on top of all that, you add the consolidation of media organizations and the devaluation of the so-called content provider and, you know, the constant squeezing of, um, You know access. I mean, it's just yeah. uh, It's sort of it's bottom up and top down at the same time, uh, creating layers of impediment to access.
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So you know how do we how do we actually have those conversations and point out how people are being impacted? And I think having having numbers to say, well, you know, actually this many people cannot cannot access that thing that is a requirement. So how are you accounting Mm -hmm. for that as a media organization?
0: Right. Were there signs of hopefulness, change, um, you know, uh, ideas about actions to be taken? Is there, like, what's the next thing?
1: You know, I think um, something that brings me a lot of hope is that photographers, you know, up and coming photographers, emerging photographers, photographers of my generation are already and have been thinking about what, equity practices, equity visual practices, contemporary visual ethics, what that looks like and how we hold ourselves accountable. How do we do better? And you see that in the work, you see that in the conversation, right? And, you know, we're not just sitting around waiting for major news media organizations mm-hmm. to change their practices and change their perspective and, and you know, they're hiring and assigning practices and their payment practices. We're demanding that of them, pointing to all the reasons why they should do that. But we're also just doing the work. We're creating our own organizations. We are building community. We're supporting one another. We're, we're you know, creating things like the Guide to Inclusive Photography and the Do No Harm Statement. You know, like Daniela, Women Photograph, looking at the data and pulling that. All of that is like volunteer labor, um, mm-hmm. you know, primarily. And just efforts that we decided, hey, you know what I wish I had had when I was a 20-year-old, like trying to figure my, find my way <laughs> through visual journalism? Some kind of guidebook that says, hey, think about these things when you're engaging in this way. That's also something that I wish that other people had who, you know, some of my peers and colleagues in the industry that I see them doing things that I wish they wouldn't. You know, I wish that they were more right. educated about how they're impacting the communities they're working with. And so instead of me just complaining about what's wrong, I want to affect change. And so I'm just going to do it. <laughs> even if no yeah. one pays me to do it. Even if, you know, it takes a lot of like exhausting time and labor. And my two <laughs> children are like, mom, why do you never leave the computer? Oh, you know, yes. but I think so. individual and collective <laughs> sacrifice is required to make change. And that's where we are right now. Right. Or actually I think that's where we have been. And now I'm seeing so many people you know, there are all of these um, women of color photographers who are coming to the industry now who are able to have access to far more assignments and commissions to more respect and acknowledgement validation of their work that they actually didn't even, they haven't had to experience how awful it was five, 10 years ago, uh, <laughs> because so many of us have been doing this work to create the infrastructure that clears the path. And that's the goal. and And the media organizations, they're going to they'll figure it out. We'll also have more and more people who get into positions of photo editors and art directors, right? curators who then are shifting that paradigm and making this space different for all of us.
0: Yeah. It, that combination of sort of creating your own, right? Your own organizations, your own ways of getting your work out there, but then also building up that contact and experience and, and resume where you can then get into these other positions and then open door, help open doors for others, right? That's sort of the, the dream because it's great to be able to, to, to make your own thing and to you then use that as a platform for others as well. But it, it's also great when you can make a living at doing it too. And those don't always go hand in hand, at least up front, right? Yeah, There is, a, there is a, a lot of volunteer time involved <laughs> with starting these things out. And Along those lines, with the the photo bill of rights did that also come out of this research? Were no. you a part of that? You were. Um, I am
1: yeah. part of the photo bill of rights. I'm one of the mm-hmm. co-authors. So what happened with the photo bill of rights is that there were several different groups of people who mm-hmm. we were all having a similar conversation around like April, end of April in 2020, maybe maybe even end of March. I don't remember how early it's. I'd have to go back and look at my emails, but. <laughs> You know, I was saying, okay, we really need to have some kind of intervention into like how what is happening with photographers. I'm talking to Oriana Karen and Eve Edelheid and very people working in NPPA, many of us at Authority Collective, Daniela Zaltzman, uh, Peter DeCampo, we're just kind of having these collegial conversations about how are photographers being impacted by COVID? And you know, I lost thousands of dollars in planned work for the year within a week. And Mm -hmm. many other people had the same experience. I think the average, there was a a survey that I'll explain in a minute that predated this one. I think that the, and it was more focused on how COVID impacted photographers. And I think that the average that photographers had lost was $10,000, like in the first, you know, kind of month. So that's a lot. That's a big chunk, especially if you're working as a freelancer and you don't have other employment,
0: And you might only be making tens of thousands in terms of like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Yeah. Right. Absolutely.
1: So as we all kind of started talking. I have a big pet peeve about people reinventing the wheel and being like, this thing already exists, but I'm going to do it and I'm <laughs> going to do it better instead of working in collaboration. It's like, actually, we can always just improve upon what is already happening by working together. Mm-hmm. So I was like, wait, wait, wait. Okay. We're all talking about this in these different places. Let's see if we can collaborate and bring bring this conversation together, which we were able to do, which was really awesome. So NPPA was trying to put out a statement. And a lot of that was statements about payment terms to news organizations. It was kind of calling on uh, newspapers and editorial outlets essentially to recognize the particular financial strain and, you know, the health risks that photographers are putting themselves in and to participate as, a, as an institution that has more resources to really participate in making this work safer and more inclusive for everyone who's doing it. And so NPPA was working on something along those lines. Authority Collective was working on something. Uh, women Photograph, et cetera. So we all were like, hey, let's do this together. And then it turns out Catchlight was also thinking about something like that. Mm. And Catchlight was convening all of these like heads of photo organizations around the world to discuss what should be done. And so we got invited to that meeting and i said well what if we do a survey cuz a lot of people were saying if only there was a way for us to know what is happening to people and i was like oh <laughs> i love surveys <laughs> i'll do a survey and so martin smith rodden and i you know got to got to work on a little survey not 50 questions much shorter really trying to understand like how are photographers being impacted by covid Catchlight circulated it. All these different organizations circulated it. And as this was happening simultaneously, we were convening the seventeen co-authors of the photo bill of rights. Catchlight's not. Catchlight was, I think, a signee, maybe, um, but is not like they weren't like an organizational part of that. They were supporting the the work on the survey, but the photo bill of rights was separate. And then they publicized the survey data, and we we uh, published an article about it in News Photographer Magazine. That is through NPPA, uh, National Press Photographers Association of the U.S. And then I said, okay, but what if we do a full state of photo uh, report? (laughs) You know, like we had it. (laughs) World Press Photo had closed that up and hadn't done another one since 2018. And I felt like this is really the time. And Martin agreed and he was willing to work on it. And so we reached out to David and Adrian and Paul and said, hey, would you be willing to work on this? And they were. And Catchlight started putting out feelers for who might be able to fund this. And Knight Foundation was kind enough to to fund it as alongside and catchlight matched their funds. And so we were able to work on this. But it did it Took some time.
0: <laughs> yeah. So,
1: and here we are. And the Photo yes. Bill of Rights launched, you know, uh, back in July of uh, 2020. Okay. And was it was a, a predecessor
0: separate... in some ways.
1: To yeah. I survey. think it was yeah. kind of, you know, all of the things were informing each other. Um, right. Really coming out of the recognition in a lot of different spaces that photojournalists, especially, were hit very hard and were at great risk during COVID, mm-hmm. like early on in, in the pandemic yeah. and needed and, support.
0: And the Photo Bill of Rights, is not a... It's not a complicated document. It's actually a kind of, in some ways, a self-defense guide or a, you know, like a a protect, you know, how to protect yourself in the industry kind of guide, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's also, you know, kind of like a a call to action for media organizations saying, hey, Mm -hmm. you know, when you pay a photographer 60 to 90 days after they did a job, you're forcing them into debt.
0: That's what you're doing. Yeah. Unless you're, you're assuming putting it on their credit have, card. Yeah.
1: Right. Unless you assume yeah. that they have, you know, generational wealth, which I can right. attest not everyone has. So,
0: <laughs> If you can match that 17 to 25% interest rate, hey, hey, Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be great if we
1: could just start hitting them with the uh, interest rates. Um, <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You know, um, I, I just spoke with uh, Mabel Jimenez and Josue Rivas, and they spoke a lot about this idea of collaboration and advocacy, you know, this idea that we think too much about storytellers and documentarians being somehow neutral and emotionally distant, and that there's this other way of working where you're, you are an advocate for the people you are photographing, and you don't just take photos of them, you collaborate with them in making this work. And that actually scored relatively low in your survey, those ideas. Do you see a a shift happening in this Landscape were these things addressed in your discussion as well?
1: Um, I, collaboration was definitely addressed. I our presentation wasn't really. We were talking more about collaboration amongst photographers and building networks of mm-hmm. solidarity and community. I right. I am completely in agreement with Mabel um, and, and Josue, Though that's something that we have talked about in many other mm-hmm. spaces, and I think this is something that's really important to understand. I often hear photographers, uh, especially people coming from like a more I don't want to say traditional, but like, you know, who have been in the industry for upwards of 30, 40 years, and so their perspective on how you do photography, especially photojournalism or documentary photography is really locked in and they're not super open-minded to thinking about different things. Right? And so I think we have there's this we're having this schism where people are hearing Oh, care about the people in your photographs as somehow affect the reality of the photograph. But actually, by pretending that you're completely neutral and not taking into consideration all the implicit biases and things that you're bringing to the photograph, you already are affecting. There's nothing we can do that will not affect the reality of the photograph. As soon as you walk into a room with a camera, you've changed the environment.
0: Yeah, it's like the observer effect in in physics. Uh, you're there, you're present, you're gonna affect the thing you're documenting, and you also have a perspective. And you know, we we should stop pretending that we don't. Right? Yes, absolutely. So you teach journalism and media studies at Loyola Marymount University currently? Yes. Yes. And I remember when I was studying journalism as an undergrad, even back then, like many years ago, <laughs> it seemed really daunting the idea that i would make a living doing this like i would like uh, i i already remember the sort of height of competition with other stringers and freelancers out there when i was you know bringing my film to the associated press and upi and daily news and the and you know newsday i, remember, I don't know if anyone remembers long island newsday <laughs> definitely <laughs> but um you know i wonder you know, I, and I ended up you know working like three jobs when I was an undergrad just to, to get through school. Yeah, so what, what kind of conversations do you have with your students about this idea of, you know, how do you do it? How do you make it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that this actually, this line of thinking ties into one of the things that we discuss in the State of Photo Report, thinking about the proliferation of or, or the need, rather for freelance photographers and emerging photographers to diversify income streams Mm. and how so many of the respondents to this survey and in the study acknowledged that they had to actually do many different jobs, including teaching, uh, curating, working as directors and across film and many different things. And so I encourage my students and also my, my peers, just anyone who's interested in being a photographer, to be very open-minded about different opportunities, to take assignments and commissions that expand your horizons, expand your skills, your capabilities, and to be okay with that. You know, photographing weddings is maybe not the thing that a photojournalist <laughs> wants to be doing, in terms of, you know, feeling like a photojournalist or a professional photojournalist, <laughs> but it's an it's a really excellent way to make money um, and to support mm-hmm. your work as a, an editorial photographer, you know, doing corporate headshots and graduation portraits and family portraits. Again, those are things that diversify your income stream, that make it possible for you to continue in this field and and to take the photojournalism editorial photography uh, Etc. work when it comes. And I think that we have maybe historically sort of looked down on those kinds of forms of commissions and uh, other forms of photographic work in, in the photojournalism, documentary photography, editorial photography realm. But not only should photographers feel confident and and secure in doing whatever we need to survive as a, pro- a professional photographer, but those are actually opportunities to learn something, to learn something new about how to do this work. You know, I learned a lot from being uh, an event photographer, from mm-hmm. uh, from being a from being a wedding photographer, from working weddings, right? And I learned about the importance of, you know, positioning myself, of thinking about lighting, like well ahead of time and, and, you know, things that could go wrong and things that can get into your way, working well in a social
0: skills. Absolutely. Like working well in
1: a team, working with, you know, doing corporate headshots made me a better portrait photographer. Just everything that I have taken away from these other jobs has improved my skill set as a photojournalist. And frankly, the work of photojournalism is so multifaceted. You might be photographing a long form project within a community one day and then the next day you're doing, you know, landscapes and the next day you're doing some like mayor's press conference and the next day you're doing (laughs) portraits and red carpet event. (laughs) There's all kinds of stuff that you have to do. So, you know, I think that every opportunity to learn various things is important And, and we need... That work, we need to be able to work, you know, widely and and be able to talk about that and not have to feel ashamed that you're supporting yourself through wedding photography or whatever it is.
0: Yes, I, I'm a total agreement. I think wedding photography is actually one of the most difficult forms of photography. And if you can learn that and you can, uh, really, you know, hone your skills with that, it does. It teaches you a lot of different skills.
1: Absolutely. So you know, that's really what I'm telling my students is: do what you have to do to survive and find. Find the learning experience in every opportunity you're presented with, you know, being working as a photo editor, help me become a better photographer, working consistently as a photographer, help me become a better photo editor. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> Everything feeds into every other thing. And there shouldn't be these hierarchies of value around photographic work.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so you have, you actually have a lot of different experiences with this industry, Uh, And you are also a consultant and you're very much active in all of these different aspects. Is that important to teaching, do you think?
1: Yes. To me, I think it's incredibly important to maintain an active participation in the fields that we're teaching about. I think if you're teaching photojournalism, but your last photojournalism assignment was 10 years ago, then you don't have the, the knowledge and the insight into what is happening right now. Photography is such a fast moving field. From a technological standpoint, a publication standpoint, how the industry works, who funds it—right, all of these things are constantly changing. And now we're in this incredible moment where we're thinking more deeply and critically about our relationship to visual ethics, to what it means to be someone wielding a a camera and creating visual narratives, visual you know rhetorics. And it's important to have a sense of. Not just the sort of theory behind that, or or what it might have been like before, but what is happening right now. And I recognize that not every professor, not every educator, can maintain a freelance career and a job teaching. That you know that isn't necessarily a, a reasonable ask for everyone. But we can be very participatory in other things. We can attend talks. We can keep our networks active. We can participate as curators, volunteer and serve our industry in different ways. You know, there's many, many different ways to stay connected and to be consistent in, in being a a working uh, visual journalist and, and, and thinking about what that means, what that looks like. So I think that's very important. It helps us stay connected to the industry that I think we love. You know, why do you? Why would you teach something you don't love? And so, if you're teaching it, yeah. I bet <laughs> that you want to be participating in it. Uh, and it helps us really have a good sense of what our students need to know, and how we send them out into this industry prepared to do the work, and and not just you know. I think a lot of times, and this isn't this isn't just true of of uh, photojournalism or photography. A lot of times. We teach how to do a particular thing, how to take images, how to think about images, but we neglect the business portion. We neglect mm-hmm. to tell students, um, you know, well, how do you make it as a photographer? How do you file your taxes? You know what what are the contract <laughs> terms? What should you look out for? how do you how do you uh, take care of yourself? like what does self care look like what is what does it look like to maintain physical safety? How do you negotiate copyright? There's so many different things that we need to be educating student photographers about so that they're prepared not only to be excellent photographers, but to be excellent colleagues in the photography field to be to push the field forward in its thinking and its approaches and to survive on a financial and interpersonal sort of level.
0: Many of the things you spell out uh, beautifully in the photo bill of rights. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, thank you for. Yes. For oh, no, that's such a, a practical guide. It's for anyone who's never read it, it's photobillofrights.com. It's, there's nothing heady about it at all. It's a very practical guide. Yes. So was there anything else that, that I missed? What What do you have coming up? I'm thinking now about what do I have coming up?
1: Um, <laughs> it's really nice to be able to put the state of photography report out into the world and to know that, you know, that's hopefully doing its work in the world and in the industry. I'm focusing on a book that I'm working on, thinking about the move to decolonize visual journalism and what that looks like, mm. why we need to do it. And So I will be working on that for the next year. And I'm also working on a textbook <laughs> about photojournalism with a collaborator oh, and very excited about that. Really thinking about photojournalism as a community endeavor, as a community experience and drawing on the wide international community of photojournalists who to showcase all of these different skills and knowledges, uh, and
0: not have oh, it just come great. from kind of one person's
1: voice. So,
0: what's the timeline like on a on that textbook, or is that just too much to ask right now? Well, <laughs> academic
1: publishing is its own very specially slow pace, <laughs> as you're probably aware. My collaborator and I, who I, I don't know if oh. If she wants to be tied to this yet, so I won't I won't name okay, her. Yes. But um <laughs> we submitted the book proposal uh recently in, in the last month. So we're working oh, wow. with the press now to flesh out and kind of firm up the details and hoping that I'll we'll be, you know, doing the the brunt of the writing in fall and, and then hopefully we'll see that hit stands like maybe late 2023, early twenty twenty-four.
0: That's fantastic. I'm actually really looking forward to to that. Um, I used to advise the college newspaper at my college and uh, I still advise the photographers. So I would love uh, a new book like that.
1: Great. Well, hopefully it'll be useful for a lot of people. I'm really excited about it. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm excited as an educator. I'm teaching photojournalism this coming fall. And, and a lot of, <laughs> you know, I'll be taking notes on on what is missing, what sorts of things will be useful for educators working in that vein and teaching in that vein to have at our fingertips. So. Yeah. And I will also be reaching out to fellow educators across the country and across the world and asking, you know, what do we need? What do we need to teach? What do we we not have access to now? You know, we've been using the same textbook. I've been teaching from the same textbook that was taught to me 20 years ago. (laughs) And it was certainly very, you know, wonderful and useful that uh, the Kenneth Cobray textbook on photojournalism. Um, But I do think that it's time to have additional insight. That that educators mm-hmm. can pull from. So hopefully that will be useful. Oh, excellent! All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Michael. It was wonderful to talk with you, and it was really a great opportunity to talk about the State of Photo Report. I hope yeah. that everyone will take a look, check it out, check out the Photo Bill of Rights, um, check out Catchlight. Yep. Catchlight and I Foundation funded the State of Photography Report and have been incredible collaborators uh, and supporters over this lengthy project and. Uh, I just want everyone to support the work that Catchlight is doing in the world because they're an excellent organization.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, they are. And uh, yeah, and thank you for the for the work. All right. So uh, bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Real Photo Show with Michael Chauvin-Dalton is a production of Real Photo Show, which you can listen to on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.